When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Also, Ben McClanahan has been talking to the chief executive of AMBAC, uh, Nada Tavakoli, about the wind-up of uh, trading house MF Global. But before that, our first two segments are looking at HSBC as the latest fallout comes back to haunt them from a foreign exchange scandal. And secondly, we'll be looking at Luxembourg as it pitches to win business from the city of London. First, Martin, HSBC probably thought that the FX scandal, in fact, a lot of us thought that the the worst of the foreign exchange scandal was behind us. But they were back in the news in the past few days because one of their current traders and a former employee as well were both arrested or had warrants issued for their arrest over abuses back in 2011, I think it was. That's right. So their current global head of cash forex trading, uh, a man called Mark Johnson, was arrested last week at JFK Airport in New York, just as he was about to uh, board the Red Eye flight back to London. And an arrest warrant has also been issued for Stuart Scott, who is no longer at HSBC, but um, was the European head of Forex cash uh, trading. So the charge that's been brought against these two individuals by the US Department of Justice is one of fraud, essentially, and that they deceived a customer in 2011 over an order that the customer placed. In this case, the customer was Cairn Energy, and the order was a $3.5 billion order for pound sterling, which HSBC won the mandate for. And these two individuals, the DOJ alleges, traded ahead of that on the bank's own proprietary accounts by buying pounds in the expectation that the price of the pound would go up as a result of this order being placed. And there's some fairly incriminating, damaging quotes that are included in the complaint that was filed by the uh, prosecutor, in particular when the order, this big order, was confirmed as going through one of the, the, the two men says to the other in an email, it's effing Christmas. <laughs> there was also an inquiry from Cairn Energy to an unnamed supervisor at HSBC about why the price of sterling was going up ahead of this order being placed at one of the uh, windows where big FX orders are typically carried out. And the response was given to Cairn that it was something to do with a Russian bank trading, uh, which was, according to the DOJ, not true. And It was person, HSBC itself. It was HSBC buying the, the, the pound ahead of it, ahead of that. So this is very damaging for HSBC 
because the bank has had a troubled past, to say the least, in the US and troubled relationships with regulators in the US. And in 2012, it signed a deferred prosecution agreement to avoid being criminally charged for several anti-money laundering and sanction breaches. Basically, they were found to have been handling hundreds of millions of dollars of laundered money for on behalf of uh, Mexican and Colombian drug gangs, as well as breaching sanctions in countries like Iran and uh, Libya. And they got penalised for that. but They uh, paid an almost $2 billion fine, but they also signed this five-year deferred prosecution agreement, which said that um, they promised to clean up their act, and if they did anything else wrong in that subsequent five years, that they would then face criminal charges. Which would in turn put their uh, whole operation at risk in the US, potentially. Potentially, but other banks have subsequently pleaded guilty and not suffered any major loss of business or impairment of their licence, although BNP did have their licence partially impaired for a temporary period after they had their big settlement for sanctions breaches a couple of years ago. Nonetheless, it's the last thing that uh, Stuart Gulliver, yeah. chief executive, needs. Now, in the, But in this case, I must point out that the because it happened, uh, the, the alleged wrongdoing happened in 2011, it predates the deferred prosecution agreement. Therefore, HSBC seems fairly confident that this is not uh, an issue that could cause the reopening of the deferred prosecution agreement. But it is still... Uh, damaging to their reputation and it's damaging to the general banking industry's reputation because again it's shown that banks seem to be putting their own interests and the interests of traders and their bonuses potentially ahead of those of their clients by trading on their own account when they knew they had this big client order and therefore you know making the client worse off and themselves better off. So Martin what are the two men saying in response? Uh, Mr. Scott, through uh, his solicitor, has strongly denied the allegations. And Mr. Johnson, who's been released on bail in New York, uh, has not had an opportunity to enter a plea, although we understand that he's also uh, denying the allegations. HSBC has not said whether or not it will support its employee, Mr. Johnson, but uh, the bank did conduct its own investigation two years ago into this whole transaction and found no wrongdoing. So the early indications are that it's likely to support Mark Johnson, at least initially. Well, this was once known as the Wild West of financial markets. It's been tightened up a little bit, but um, we're certainly getting a glimpse of how it used to be. Let's move on to our second topic of the day, a look at Luxembourg, which is one of Europe's challenger financial centres, I think it's fair to say, who are pitching like others, including uh, Frankfurt and Paris and Dublin, for business from the City of London. Their economy minister and finance minister and other other people involved in Luxembourg have been in London recently and are here uh, again over the next couple of weeks, basically on a charm offensive to try and win business. I was talking yesterday with Etienne Schneider, who is the Economy Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, and also Nicolas Markel, who's the head of Luxembourg for Finance, uh, about what they're doing and where they see opportunities and dangers as a result of the Brexit vote. I started by asking Mr Schneider what exactly he was doing, what he thought Luxembourg's role could be in terms of helping financial services companies who are threatened by the City of London's being frozen out of the EU single market. We're going to meet uh, up with, uh, but in an informal way, with, uh, on a dinner with uh, some 
companies, UK companies, which or let's say companies which are based in UK as well, but which have uh, activities in Luxembourg as well, in order to see what Brexit means uh, to them, how we can uh, maybe help them uh, in order to be, you know, kind of their bridge to Europe if ever it comes to to the Brexit. So our idea is uh, to see how we can be of assistance to these companies which are already in Luxembourg and and see what their needs are, what their perspectives are. I went on to ask Mr Schneider in practical terms what Luxembourg could offer to these financial institutions. We have a very tight business relationship with big companies, be it in the financial sector, be it in the industrial uh, sector, and uh, you know our, our idea is to see, to get to know how they feel the Brexit, what they think will happen, and be of assistance uh, if they need you. You know, for instance, there might be some companies or some uh, financial institutions which will need a European passport. They will need a branch somewhere in the European Union. And as we are talking to the ones which are already active in Luxembourg, we want to see if that could be Luxembourg, if they are thinking about Luxembourg. When it comes to when it comes to Brexit, and then I asked Nicola Mackell, who's the head of Luxembourg for Finance, whether there was any downside from the UK's leaving the European Union. There are obviously opportunities, but did they bemoan Brexit in some ways as well? If the UK really steps outside the institutional framework and thus doesn't participate anymore in the uh, lawmaking process on the European level. That is where I think you will see, quote-unquote, the the biggest damage for Europe. Not damage in in any sort of economic Mm. sense, but um, the UK has a a very liberal economic point of view, has always defended that, and Luxembourg, I think, happens to share that point of view very much. Uh, Certainly in financial services, we have very much aligned interests. You take the, um, the financial transaction tax, you take uh, many of the other uh, regulatory issues in, in financial services, Luxembourg and the UK were always very much aligned. Mm. You take the UK out of the equation mm. um, and not participating at the, in the discussions anymore, um, you can see that maybe the, the weight of those defending a seamless fin- uh, single market in financial services mm might not have as much of a weight without the UK. Uh, So it's not enough if the UK has access in a a market access point of view, but if they don't participate in the regulatory process, uh, the market becomes more difficult. Well, let's move on to our third uh, segment. Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been in conversation with Nada Takavoli, who's head of AMBAC, the bond insurer, but is also the litigation trustee of MF Global, the trading house of which went belly up while under the leadership of former Goldman Sachs partner John Corzine. Ben started by asking Mr. Tavakoli whether there's any lessons that could be learned from this affair. I think uh, if there's a lesson in this thing, it is uh, that uh, boards need to be more vigilant and diligent than ever Mm -hmm. in overseeing risk um, at their companies, um, and that uh, while leverage can be used prudently, leverage can also be used imprudently. 
and um, the bonds that MF Global uh, purchased during the uh, European financial crisis all matured. And so from that perspective, you know, the bonds uh, would have been a money good, but that the leverage that was put on the company during that very volatile time uh, was not something that the company could withstand. Right. And the volatility ended up uh, really being the thing that uh, ended up uh, being the demise of the company. So if this had been so, Goldman Sachs, for example, they could have just ridden it all out. Goldman Sachs's balance sheet would have probably enabled them to do that, yes. And MF Global's balance sheet did not allow them to do that. And that's a very important lesson here, the use and abuse of leverage. And, you know, from our perspective, we also do, uh, as the plan administrator, claim that uh, the accountants, PwC, were responsible in doing a better job of, A, advising in the first instance on the accounting uh, treatment mm -hmm. of these transactions. And then secondarily, while they were on the job, they should have done a better job of uh, raising a flag when the uh, positions became very large for the company's balance sheet. Right. You're, you're talking about the complex things called repo to maturity transactions. Explain to, to our listeners exactly what that is and, right. and why PwC should be in trouble for it. Right. So I can't talk too much about the PwC case because it's pending, but the repo to maturity transaction is basically a swap where uh, the company was uh, acquiring the most stressed of the European sovereign bonds, uh, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, and so on. And uh, they were doing that on, on large leverage and keeping it off balance sheet. And uh, there are provisions of GAAP that allow for the treatment of repo to maturities in that respect. But our view was that these were not, in fact, uh, legitimate repo maturity transactions mm -hmm. uh, and that, um, um, you know, folks should have been um, more careful in their assessment of what they were and they weren't. So this chapter is not quite closed. Right. So the settlement last week um, closes uh, the multi-district li uh, litigation aspect of the case, which mm -hmm. was basically the cases against the management, certain f members of the board. And there's a few other things to do before it's finalized and the money is distributed to the creditors and the customers. But there is still pending litigation against PwC for their role in this entire thing. Okay. And uh, the, the litigation against uh, Mr. Corzine himself, uh, that's been mostly dealt with? That's right. We have, and this is where a lot of creativity came into play because there are a lot of loose ends, uh, but we have in this settlement provided for all of the implications of litigation against management and the board to the company and its creditors. Uh, Mr. Corzine is still defending uh, the civil litigation uh, by the CFTC, uh, along with another member of management, uh, but that will not any longer have any implication on the estate. Uh, okay. That's for Mr. Corzine to deal with. And how have the creditors done? The creditors have done very well. The customers are going to be made whole on their customer accounts, uh, plus a little bit of uh, incremental value to them, uh, which is unusual in these kinds of cases. And then the creditors of the holding company are going to do very well as well. We, uh, we think the bank creditors are going to get a very substantial recovery. Uh, and even the bonds, which are uh, subordinated in certain respects to the bank debt, are going to come out um, getting back a multiple of uh, what I think people early on in the case thought they were going to get. And for the holding company, very substantial is, is what, 90 cents plus on the loan? Yeah. I'd rather not speculate on an exact number, uh, but I would say that it would be those kinds of neighborhoods potentially. And moving on just as finally for, with, with AMBAC, um, most of our listeners perhaps might know AMBAC as, as one of the victims of the financial crisis, um, having made uh, lots of insurance to RMBS that's, um, that perhaps it shouldn't have done. But latterly, you, you've made a recovery uh, under your leadership. 
So what are the big threats on the horizon for you now? Well, thank you. AMBAC did go through a bankruptcy, as you well know, as a result of the uh, uh, repercussions of the financial crisis, and primarily as it related to the housing portfolio at AMBAC Insurance. We are now running off the insurance company, and uh, that is going um, well. We think that we have made tremendous accomplishments. And the, the big issues there are really managing the risk book. And um, as it's well known, we have some exposure to Puerto Rico there. Right. But we have managed uh, through our um, activity in the marketplace, through uh, buyback and commutation of our policies, to create significant book value uh, for AMBAC Assurance and for the shareholders. And so since we emerged from bankruptcy in May of 2013, we've created over $2.5 billion of uh, equity uh, value for the shareholders. The stock now has about a $30 adjusted book value. Um, I think last week it hit 52-week high at about $18 a share. Uh, and we are hopeful that there are good things to come for AMBAC. Okay. But it seems the, the, the big item in your intro is Puerto Rico. Well, Puerto Rico is one of the big items on uh, in our risk book, and I have personally been very involved uh, in uh, what's been going on with Puerto Rico. We were uh, very engaged in the deliberations around PROMESA, which is the legislation that was recently passed by Congress and signed by the president. And uh, we are very hopeful that that oversight board that's been implemented as part of PROMESA is going to do good things in Puerto Rico by way of bringing the place back into sort of fiscal uh, discipline and creating some of the reform that's needed to put the island on path for prosperity going forward. Uh, we're very optimistic about uh, what's going to happen in Puerto Rico. Nader Tavakoli, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin here in the studio, our guests from Luxembourg, and also uh, Ben McClanahan and his guest, Nada Tafakoli. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>